This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by my book, Breaking Bad Faith, Exposing Myth and Violence in Popular Theology to Recover the Path of Peace. I'm Michael Camp. The book helps people break damaging beliefs that are based on myths. It exposes the big lie that God brings justice through retribution, punishment, imprisonment, the death penalty, lenient gun laws, American wars, final judgment, and eternal damnation. It's a religious crap detector. In case you're wondering, that is a theological term. The book uses sound history to reveal the love and restorative justice narratives of Jesus and the prophets. There are real-life stories, many outside Christianity, about people plotting peace rather than revenge to fight evil. Find it at Amazon.com. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode, we're talking about Emily Dickinson, queer poetics, and biblical images of wells. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird, And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey there, Jean. And hey, listeners. Happy New Year. I'm glad to be in a new year and glad to be continuing our conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible. Hmm. We're continuing here in our series, Queering the Bible, with a poem by Emily Dickinson, whom quite a few lesbian literature scholars have claimed as one of their own. Scholars argue about Dickinson's sexuality, but I have to tell you, I don't make any claims about it myself. I'm agnostic about Dickinson's sexuality. (laughs) Uh, I will say, though, that Dickinson scholars have pointed out that Dickinson uses a good deal of erotically charged imagery, including what Catherine Simpson calls clitoral imagery, jewels, seeds, buds, berries, small flowers. This poem combines jewel imagery with well imagery, and they both seem to me to evoke female anatomy. And the well image refers directly to the Gospel of John's story about Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman. So Jennifer and I were thinking we just want to make sure everybody has these well stories fresh in their minds before we go into the Dickinson poem. So Jennifer, do you want to talk a little bit about well imagery in the Hebrew Bible? Sure, sure. Well, I will start off by saying that since you mentioned that Dickinson is working with the Samaritan woman and Jesus, well seen from John's gospel, that it's important to note that that itself is probably drawing from what we refer to as the betrothal scenes in the Hebrew Bible. And there are a couple of those pretty well-known ones. The, The longer one is in Genesis 24, when Abraham sends one of his slaves to go find a woman for his son Isaac. And there's a nice long drawn out betrothal, you know, purchasing her from her family, all that stuff. And it starts, they he meets her at a scene where she is helping to water his animals. And Jacob then gets a similar one and it's shorter. 
But (laughs) what I think you and I are excited to talk about is one of the well scenes that isn't as well known. Is that a pun? I don't know. Um, (laughs) uh, I like it. Okay. I like it. And and it's also in an interesting way. It's a very powerful one. It's there are all kinds of reasons we could discuss it another time why it might be overlooked by scholars or perhaps even people in faith communities. But this one falls into a different category from the betrothal scenes, as do, as do a couple others that come up in Genesis, which I want to mention very quickly. And, yeah. and that is that we see a lot of conversation in Genesis around territory and water. This mm. really shouldn't surprise us, right? But, but what I think is important, at least for us today, is to think about how different that is for most of us in developed and develop, you know, in developed countries, mm. we don't need to. Most of us don't even know how you go about finding water to begin with, right? Whether it's a well or from tapping into your city or your county's public system, right? I mean, not even a part of the conversation, but central, central for them, right? So we have, you know, stories about the Philistines filling up the well of you know one of the tribes of Israel, and you know, that's like that's a war tactic, right? Um anyway, so those are there are a handful of these kinds of well scenes. But let's talk about I'm gonna I'm gonna hand the ball to you. <laughs> um sure. yeah, to talk about the one regarding related to Hagar and Ishmael. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, before we dive into that though, I also just wanted to add to your preface by saying that so we in industrialized countries where we turn on a tap and the water comes out, <laughs> it's hard for us to imagine the level of urgency that surrounded water and wells in the ancient world. And also, I wanted to point out our climate. I live near a great lake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I live near mm-hmm. Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. and all my water comes from there. And in North America, North America is just full of rivers and lakes and ponds and we're bounded by two oceans, and I do think that water imagery feels very different to us because of the geography than it would feel to someone who's telling stories and writing poetry in a, in a desert landscape. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the urgency, or the, not dire, but the, the essential element to their yeah, lives. And I think dire is the right word for it. I I absolutely do. So, uh, listeners, we want to talk about the story of Hagar. And I'm sure you'll probably remember that Hagar is the Egyptian woman who's been enslaved by Abraham and Sarah. And I want to note, Jennifer, and also to our listeners, that when I was reading the story of Abraham and Sarah growing up, I didn't even realize that Hagar was an enslaved woman or that she's a woman of color, Mm -hmm. even though it says right in the text that she's Egyptian. Right. I didn't see her as a woman of color, and I didn't understand that she was enslaved. So that part of my understanding of the story came to me much, much later in life. And I want to credit Dolores Williams's Mm. book, Sisters in the Wilderness. The Challenge of Womanist God Talk uh, for that, um, and also Will Gaffney's 
a womanist midrash, which we've talked about before, but I really needed other biblical scholars to point this out to me because I didn't read her in this way initially. Right, right. And I think that's an important thing to also to comment on the element of enslavement within biblical texts and how so many people, even if they are, regardless of awareness of skin color, right, so many people are are accustomed to thinking about the Bible as a good thing, that everything in it is good and all the things happen according to God's will or something like that. And I have encountered quite a few people who will resist talking about Hagar as enslaved or talking about her in any way, having her own autonomy, so that they will say, well, Hagar was, you know, went along with everything that happened to her and she was game for the treatment. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, that's given to her and all that kind of, you know. So, yeah, I think it's important to talk honestly about the way enslavement, the enslavement of peoples plays out in biblical texts. And in a sense, pointing that out first then makes what does happen here even more interesting and powerful, right? I agree with that. I do agree with that. I think that once we acknowledge Hagar's subject position as an enslaved individual, what happens to her in the desert is much more interesting and pointed and and powerful. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so let's let's read some of those moments uh, from the story. So what happens, listeners, is uh, so Sarah's unable to conceive and has this plan of forcing her enslaved, forcing Hagar, this enslaved woman, into what Dolores Williams called reproductive surrogacy, that she's a, a forced surrogate mother um, and becomes pregnant. And she actually has two trips into the desert. So the first time around, she's pregnant and she runs away from Sarah because Sarah is abusing her. The text doesn't say exactly how Sarah is abusing her, but she's abusing her in some way. So um, Hagar attempts to liberate herself and goes into the desert. That liberation doesn't follow through at that point. She, <laughs> we, we could say it doesn't play out well. Yeah. It doesn't play out well. She runs into an angel and the angel sends her back. Cringe, cringe. <laughs> yeah, cringe, cringe. Uh, temporarily. <laughs> she's only back temporarily. Right, um, right. Maybe once the baby is born, she's got a better shot at self-liberation. So, um, so the baby is born. So she goes into the desert the first time. The angel says, where are you going? Where have you been? Sends her back to Abraham and Sarah. And then she gives birth to Ishmael. Here's, here's what happens. Uh, Sarah gets really jealous of Ishmael. Uh, Sarah is able to have a child and her child is Isaac. And Sarah gets really anxious and she doesn't want the two kids playing together. (laughs) And so she prevails on Abraham to send Hagar away, which Abraham is in the story. Story says he's reluctant to do it, uh, but he does do it. So Hagar gets sent into the wilderness a second time. And I'm just going to read from this moment when Hagar gets sent into the wilderness. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So I want to pause over that moment when Hagar's eyes open up, whatever that means, mm-hmm. and she sees a well, and then she gets water. So I'll toss the ball to you, Jennifer. What strikes you first? <laughs> reading this this time around. Mm, Right, right. I think I'm, you know, as you were reading it, I was thinking through all of the pieces of this story that are focused on Ishmael. And it even says that right before where you start reading that Abraham was distressed about sending them away because of his son, not because of Hagar, Um, which we should expect from these ancient texts. But I still want to point it out because it's still a harm that's being done to her over and over when the story is so focused on the males, or in this case, the son, the child. And so she says, do not let me look on the death of the child, not my child. I was struck by that this time. So when I think about this part of the story you asked me to respond to after those pieces, I I just, you know, is she hallucinating? You know, she's hallucinating. Is this metaphorical? What are we doing with this that makes it work or makes it important or powerful and helpful for us in any kind of way, I guess. And a good bit of people in conservative communities in particular will make a very big deal of this particular scene, not necessarily connecting it to her enslavement or who she is specifically, but this idea that God will provide. God sees El Roy um, and God will provide. So I'm, I'm curious, you said that you have a different take on this than this, I guess, the typical way of engaging this story. I'm very eager to hear what your thoughts are. Sure. Well, I actually, um, I I kind of like the narrative of provision. Like, I I like that idea that it's a story about unexpected provision. And I have to say that my view of the story is really, really influenced by having read Sisters in the Wilderness. And so it becomes a story about making a way out of no way, that this black woman makes a way out of no way. And I didn't realize before I read Sisters in the Wilderness that there's even a church of Hagar (laughs) and that women play prominent roles in the church and that Hagar in this story, Hagar in this story is a single mother. 
And I spent 10 years as a single mother. So, you know, we've kind of said this before, but you kind of find in the in biblical stories what you're looking for. Of course. In biblical yes, stories. Of course. And so one thing I find here is this tremendous affirmation that God sees and hears the most vulnerable mm-hmm. people in a culture. Hagar is the most vulnerable. And Hagar's son is extremely vulnerable. She's a single mom. She's outside of the economic structures of the culture that would ordinarily support her. And so it's a really, really a dire situation. And I don't know exactly what happens with her eyes opening and a well of water appearing. I can't say what that is, but the meaning of it for me is this idea that there, there will be a way made out of no way that something can open up and the things that you need that you think you're not going to get, you may very well get. And I like this story because also because even though so Ishmael is very <laughs> carefully portrayed as a troublemaker um, in at the end of the story. But to me, for the story to say, I will make a great nation of him. And then he goes on to have 12 sons of his own and they have 12 tribes. And so it's this parallel nation to the nation of Israel, and its Bible speak for he's very prosperous and does very well for himself um, in life. I think fruitfulness is Bible speak for prosperity and thriving. Mm-hmm. So he though thrives. He's an antagonistic presence to the people of Israel, his cousins, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This is why... Um, I, I recognize that it's a fanciful interpretation, but I'm really focused totally. on it. Totally, yes. He thrives and he does well, and it becomes this story of, of a woman. Well, she is, I think, the only woman who encounters God alone. God talks to Sarah, but Abraham is there. And so this is unique in that it's an interaction between God and this single woman. and. Uh, and I like that. Yes. And you are not alone. A lot of, in particular, feminist and womanist biblical scholars do talk about this, not only that she gets to talk to him or in, interact alone, but is the first in the biblical narrative mm-hmm. to do so. Yeah. And that's that's something to celebrate. Right after our break, I think we're going to talk about the story in John and read the poem. But I also, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, Jean, about how you know, is maybe Dickinson is working with something more like this instead of the that we the one we think she's working with in John. We'll let's talk, talk about, about it. it when we come back. Yeah, yep. let's do that. Uh, all right. <laughs> okay, welcome back, listeners. Jennifer, would you like to talk about the story of? Jesus and the Samaritan Woman by the Well? Sure, sure. I think, I'm trying to think which parts of it to highlight. I think many people are familiar with this, um, who are familiar with Jesus's stories, I should say. Encountering a woman at a well, lots of people like to ask questions like, why is she there at the middle of the day? Is it to have, is she, has she been shunned or, you know, does she feel slightly ostracized? So she goes in the 
during the heat of the day instead of early in the morning when most likely all the other people drawing water would go. All kinds of interesting things, questions come up about this story. And because it's located within John's gospel, for me, I think we should be, to respect John's gospel, we should think that there's there are two different kind of planes of existence that are being talked about. And I'll just leave that part at that. But he ends up Mm -hmm. having conversations with people in John, and they think he's talking about this world and he's talking more in a spiritual way. That's for another day to to discuss more deeply. But what I do enjoy about this story is this woman is, in a sense, standing up for herself and she's talking to Jesus and she she knows a thing or two and she's not afraid to, you know, go and tell her the, her, the people in town who've been ostracizing her, right, to go share this interesting news and great, you know. So there are all kinds of pieces to the story that I do find interesting. I'll just read part of the story, I think, for our listeners, but I think it is also important to note that it's not just there's an allusion to those betrothal scenes. It's very clear this is the same well that's being talked about, that where he is going. Jacob's well was there, Mm. right? And Jesus, tired by his journey, was sitting by the well. And in each case of the betrothal scenes, the man comes to the well and encounters a woman and has this really interesting exchange. And then they end up somehow pairing up in one way or another to go back and become family. So this story challenges that theme, right? Kind of resists that and maybe is even Mm. intentionally playing with it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But we have a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Parenthetically, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And I'm just going to pause right there and just let that be what we're talking about here, because I do think that's what Dickinson is picking up on, right? This idea of living water, water, the giving of life, all those kinds of refreshing kinds of ideas. There's the story itself goes on for quite a quite a ways. But I think that's the important nugget to remind our readers of or share with our readers if they're not familiar with the story. So how about it? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. I also wanted to add a oh. little bit about the bucket okay. because bucket comes oh, up right. also. I forgot about that. So <laughs> that's yeah, I'm just going to pick it up where you left off. And I'm at verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. And then I'll stop there. And like you said, the the story really plays with these two different meanings of water. And just like Nicodemus didn't get the thing about being born again, what do you mean I have to crawl back into my mother's (laughs) womb? Like, this is another case of somebody right. not reading the metaphor, right? Um, oh, give, give me some, because yeah. I don't want to keep coming to the well. I, I remember 
just spontaneously sharing mm-hmm. this story one day during Quaker meeting for worship. And I didn't intend to do this, but the way I told the story got a laugh at the end hmm. because she misses the metaphor. Mm-hmm. The Samaritan woman misses the <laughs> metaphor. And in a certain way, it's it's slightly humorous. Right. 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 Um, but I think the point that I want to underscore is that there's this tension between living water as a metaphor, which is, as you say, kind of the source of life, a source of renewal. Um, there, there's this really nice phrase that a French philosopher, Henri Bergson, has to just describe life force. And he uses the phrase elan vital, vital force, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this story, and I definitely Dickinson's poem, they're both engaged with that question of where does that come from, that Ilan Vital? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Jesus is claiming in the story that it comes from him. And of course, a lot of people agree with that. Right. <laughs> that it comes from Jesus, a relationship <laughs> with Jesus, a conversation with Jesus. And I guess it does for some people. Right. And then Dickinson is interested, well, I mean, I feel like we should read the poem before we talk about maybe how Dickinson is interested in living water. Um, But before we move to the poem, I just want to see if you had any more that you wanted to say about this tension in the metaphor. All right, let's dive in then. Shall I go ahead and read it? Sure. All right. I know where wells grow. I know where wells grow, droughtless wells, deep dug for summer days, where mosses go no more away and pebble safely plays. It's made of fathoms and a belt, a belt of jagged stone, inlaid with emerald halfway down and diamonds jumbled on. It has no bucket. Were I rich, a bucket I would buy. I'm often thirsty, but my lips are so high up, you see. I read in an old-fashioned book that people thirst no more. The wells have buckets to them there. It must mean that, I'm sure. Shall we remember perching, then? Those waters sound so grand. I think a little well, like mine, dearer to understand. (laughs) I mean, on one hand, she is talking very politely about having a sex drive, isn't she? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and sexual desire. And I, I, I mean, yeah, a little well like mine is dearer to understand instead of the yeah. the cosmic concept of waters or wells and endless, you know, endless resources or whatever. Never thirsting. That's a whole different level of yeah. reality than the physical embodied experience of longing and desires and <laughs> and wouldn't it be nice yeah. if we could always just satiate those desires, right? Yes, yes. I I really agree with that. And a lot of Emily Dickinson scholars agree with you that 
she's very interested in exploring sexuality. And there's this, uh, in the same way that there's a tension in the story of the Samaritan woman by the well between the meanings of of living water and thirsting and parching and longing, right? There are multiple meanings. There are even more meanings here in the story because it's building on those meanings of spiritual sustenance and spiritual energy and erotic energy and the way in which erotic experience can infuse a person with life and energy. I'm thinking of eros mm-hmm. in the largest sense, mm-hmm. just life force, yes. elan vital. Yes. And all of those meanings are being played with in the poem. And this, the jewel imagery, which is so characteristic of Emily Dickinson, those are the kinds of images that for some Emily Dickinson scholars really make the eroticism specifically lesbian. And like I said, I'm agnostic about it. Um, but, but for sure, I think it's evoking female sexuality. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of scholars say that, and I can certainly see it. And it's really interesting, I think, to pair a biblical story yes. with this exploration of sexuality. I think that's very interesting. I do too. And one of the things that occurs to me here as we're chatting about it is in a sense a redeeming of sexuality, whether it's female or just sexuality in general. Mm-hmm. Because the story of the woman at the well is has been traditionally, maybe not across the board, but is traditionally talked about through the lens of, well, she's been married five times, what's wrong with her? Or some form of judgment on her and her sexual practices because she's had sex with five men. Instead of seeing that she's actually caught in some form of, you know, she has no control. She has no say in those matters as a woman in that point in time. And it's actually the men we should be pointing at, whatever. But, but the fact that I have, you know, I heard it growing up. I know people still do it where they demonize her on a level, a certain level, mm-hmm. because she's had sex with five men. And the one she's living with now, she's not married to. And that get and people get all caught up in that and judge her, and then they separate her from the whole story, and then they talk about Jesus in this other way that's separate from sex and sexuality. Whereas this is really, to me, is a nice way of, in a sense, bridging the gap between those two realms of holiness and sexuality. That they do not need to be separate realms, but for many for many people of faith, they are talked about as if they are. And how lovely that she does this with it. Yeah, that's very beautifully put, what you just said, Jennifer, that the realm of holiness and sexuality do not need to be separated. And this poem brings them back together. And I guess in the Hebrew Bible, probably about the only place I can think of where holiness and sexuality (laughs) are blended is in the Song of Songs. That's the that erotic language. That's always what people point to when they want to point to a place in the Bible where sexuality is celebrated and recognized as sacred. So, um, so I love that. I wanted to add a little thing just to add to your observations about how joyful and playful the poem is. There's a lightness to it. And as it brings together holiness and sexuality, I want to add that there's one interesting scholar who writes about how 
to whatever extent Emily Dickinson is representing lesbian sexuality and queer experience, that it's, it's lighter and more playful and more optimistic, that there's a tremendous amount of literature by queer poets and writers that emphasize um, kind of the tragedy of queer experience, especially in the late 18th, Mm. early 19th century closeted queer experience, but that in Emily Dickinson's writing, there's a great joy and a playfulness to the representation of, if we do take it as a representation of lesbian sexuality, there's a great joy and a playfulness to it. And Mm -hmm. I just wanted to comment on that too. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Not that the the angst and the out of the closeted experience, not that that isn't important and helpful also, but I agree with you. It is nice to have this positive. I, I keep mulling over this line, the third, the middle stanza. It has no bucket. She's talking about mm-hmm. the droughtless wells made of fathoms and it has no bucket. Were I rich, a bucket I would buy. I'm often thirsty but my lips are so high up, you see. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out what she's saying there. Is she, you know, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm picturing her standing at the bottom of a well and not being able to get to the water at her feet or something. I don't think that's what mm. she means, but I'm also trying to figure out what is she, what is she getting at? With Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe we'll let that be well, s- something for our uh, well, listeners to. Yeah. I mean, we've always talked about this, how, Poems have an intentional ambiguity, often like, kind of like parables, right? Not all parables have a lot of built-in ambiguity, but there's a fair amount of built-in ambiguity to parable yeah. as a genre, right. right? And poetry is like that, too. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's made so that we're left puzzling and there's an ambiguity that we dwell in. And what I would say about the stanza that you just called our attention to is that the stanza is really emphasizing that ambiguity that we could be talking about a well (laughs) and water or we could be talking about access to sexual contact and we could be talking about a person's ability to access elan vital yeah vital energy whatever makes you feel alive yeah and it's, I, th- I would say that all of it is in there. And we won't be able to kind of nail it down ultimately, no. nor would we want uh, no, to. Nor do we want to. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, well, thank you so much this for was... talking about this Emily Dickinson poem. Hey, let's do it again, huh? Let's do it again. This was a fun one to talk about. Thank you, Jean. Yeah. You're welcome. All right. Bye, listeners. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about the show. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes every other week. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Audio produced by Clara Carrera and Matt Byrne. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast 
at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Until our next wild conversation, we'll see you then.